Lord, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. For your word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword that tells us the truth about yourself and ourselves. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that truth. And we just pray, Lord, that even when truth is hard to hear, that you would make us willing to hear it. So, Lord, I just pray for open hearts, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would open our hearts to receive what you have to say to us through your word today. That as we receive it, Lord, we would also be able to receive the grace and the healing that is only found in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray your blessing upon this time. And we all said, amen. amen. Uh, well, we are in uh, week three of a sermon series called Breaking Barriers. Uh, where we're looking at some of Paul's writings about the nature of Christian love. And especially with uh, Valentine's Day, uh, I thought love would be kind of an appropriate theme for this month. Um, but, but specifically Christian love, um, because the love that we're called to show one another in the church is a little bit different from the way the world uh, defines love. So really, we're, we're going to be discussing this month what some of the barriers to that kind of love can be. Um, and how God is in the business of breaking them down through the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, and today we're going to be talking about tough love, tough love, and also the role of judgment in the life of the church. You, you probably heard Paul use that phrase judgment a couple of times uh, in that passage. Um, and especially in modern thinking, to, to judge someone in any way uh, is by definition, the opposite of loving them. Uh, but, but in today's reading, the Apostle Paul actually tells us otherwise. In the previous weeks, we talked about the fact that, that Jesus has broken down every dividing wall within the church by his grace, and out of the pieces of those walls, begun to build the exterior walls of his church. And this week, I, I want to talk about the purpose of those exterior walls walls, the purpose of those exterior walls, because while there are no walls within the church, there are, there are walls that define the church from the rest of the world, boundaries, if you will. Within God's community of grace, there is such a thing as tough love that should exist for the good of the community and the individuals within it. So our, patch, our passage for this morning, of course, is a tough text, and thank you, Lynn, for reading such a tough text. Lynn, Lynn was like, you know, we were meeting earlier this week, she's like, do I really have to read this on Sunday? I'm like, yes. <laughs> You're the lucky winner. You get to read it. Uh, so thank you, Lynn. And uh, it, it's a tough text, but I felt it necessary to wrestle with it. Um, if, if we're to wrestle with the true nature of Christian love, Christian love, um, because Christian love doesn't always mean just being nice to people, okay? Um, I, I grew up Catholic, and when I was a kid, I thought that being nice was the epitome 
of what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, so much so that it was the blanket answer that I would write on every one of my religion tests, okay? Um, so, so in Catholic school, you know, we had religion class every day, and when a question would come up on a test about how I was supposed to act as a Christian, I would always just simply write the phrase, be nice. I thought, well, if you just be nice, you know, that's, that's what you do. Uh, but is it possible to be nice to a detriment? Is it possible to be nice to a detriment? Our passage for this morning gives us a resounding yes. It is, in fact, possible to be nice to the point of doing harm to another person's soul and to the church, especially when our definition of nice involves never speaking the truth in love to someone. Because sometimes the truth is not so nice. Sometimes the truth hurts, even if it's for our benefit. So today I want to talk about what tough love should look like in the church, because sometimes we all need a little kick in the pants. Amen? All right. So we'll get our little kick in the pants this morning. Um, so let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and dig into this challenging text together if you have your Bibles with you. Uh, otherwise, uh, you have them in front of you or you can use your phones. If you do use your phones, do, do make sure to check in on Facebook and let people know you're worshiping with us this morning. Um, so in order to uh, help us understand what was going on here, the situation that Paul was writing about, we need to have a little bit of a crash course on Greco-Roman culture, um, which was really not all that different from our own in a lot of respects. Um, so Paul was writing this to the church in Corinth, which was a booming cultural center of the Roman Empire. And Roman society largely operated on the premise of honor and shame. So in other words, uh, there were those to whom honor was ascribed uh, who reserved the right to shame those beneath them, uh, which gave them all the more power and status. Um, and in Corinthian culture, honor was usually ascribed to a person on the basis of their socioeconomic standing as, uh, and position in society. So if a person was wealthy, their family had a good reputation, uh, and they held a position of power in society, they would be considered an honorable person. Now, what did not come into consideration in Roman society was one's moral behavior when it came to being an honorable person. So Corinth was, was actually notorious uh, for having loose morals as a society, much like Las Vegas is today. So think of Chorus, Corinth of kind of the, the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. Uh, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, all right? Um, but when it came to the man in question in our passage today, while a lot of things flew in Corinth, even this kind of behavior did not. It appears that this man was having romantic relations with his stepmother. And not only that, but everyone was aware of it. And not only that, but the church was proud of it. Now, how could the church in Corinth be proud about such reprehensible behavior? Now, as one commentator speculated as I was reading up on this passage today, uh, or this week, it's possible that this man and his stepmother were from uh, an honorable family by Roman standards, 
and everyone was afraid to bring shame upon them because to do so would be a cultural faux pas. You just didn't do that. If someone was more powerful than you, you did not bring shame upon them. Um, so it's, it's possible that out of a desire to not offend this man of honor, they instead decided to be proud about their ability to include him in the church despite his behavior. Now, this is starting to sound a little familiar. You know, there are a lot of churches today that pride themselves on how inclusive they are, even if it means letting sin go unchecked in their midst. Why? Because to offend someone by speaking a hard truth to them is often seen as more reprehensible than the sin itself in today's culture. And so instead of dealing with the sin in our midst for the well-being of one another's souls and for the life of the church, we remain silent and proudly pretend like everything's okay. Are we seeing the parallels here between this text and between the church today? Now, before we go any further with, with this, I want to stop and consider the particular kind of sin um, that is damaging to the life of the church. Because there, there are probably quite a few sitting here thinking, but the pastor, if Paul is saying that there shouldn't be any sin in the church, if that's the case, I, I, I can't be here. Um, and that's not at all what he's saying, because the truth is no one here is perfect, myself included. Uh, we all sin, we all fall short, and we are all sinners saved by grace. Amen? We can all agree on that. Uh, however, there is a certain kind of sin that is utterly destructive, both to a person's soul and to the church. And the man in question in this passage serves as an example of this kind of sin. I believe there are three characteristics of this man's sin that made it such an issue in the life of the church. Number one, it was publicly apparent to others. Number two, it was known by the individual. And number three, it was unrepentant. In other words, he, he was not remorseful about it. So everybody knew about it. The man knew it wasn't right. And yet, both he and the church were attempting to redeem the behavior by being proud of it. And Paul's response is, what is wrong with you people? You know, at verse 2, he says, and you're proud. Shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So what Paul's response teaches us is that while this man's sin was indeed a problem... It was not the main problem. The main problem was the man and the church's attitude towards the sin. And here's where we arrive at our first lesson I believe we can learn from this text this morning, is that God cares about our attitude towards sin. God cares about our attitude towards sin. Why? Because a nonchalant attitude towards sin has an effect not just on our souls individually, but on the entire church. Because if public, known, unrepentant sin is tolerated in the church, then everything becomes relativized. So in other, in other words, if it's okay for him to do that, then why is it not okay for me to do this? 
You know, when, when unrepentant sin gains a foothold in the church, instead of allowing God's word to guide us, we begin to be guided by our notion of what we think is fair instead of God's word. After all, if, if we're willing to tolerate one sin, why are we not willing to tolerate another? And, and this makes complete sense. You know, this, this is the exact reason why Paul is advocating so adamantly for the removal of this man from the church, because otherwise everything becomes relativized, and why shouldn't it? Because it's only fair. If we're going to tolerate one person's sin over here, why, why can't we tolerate the rest? And so he says, remove this man from your fellowship. Now, to help us understand why Paul would have recommended this, let's take a look at his analogy of leaven in verse 6. He says, your, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. So Paul is essentially saying, a bad apple spoils the whole barrel. Don't you know that Jesus wants better for you than this? Jesus wants better for you than this. Because that's the truth. Jesus wants better for our lives. He meets us where we're at without judgment, but he doesn't leave us there, amen? Jesus meets us where we're at without judgment, but he does not leave us there. Hear this, church. Jesus did not die and rise again so we could keep on living the exact same lives we were living before we met him. That's not why Jesus went to the cross. That's not why he died and rose again. Jesus wants us to lead changed lives. And only he has the power to change us. He wants to change our hearts and our lives by getting rid of all the junk that is harmful, both to us and to the people around us. But the thing is, in order for Jesus to change us, we have to be willing. Now, another way to think about sin is like cancer. You know, sin both in the church and in our personal lives is, is like a tumor that spreads and continues to do harm to us and, and endanger our lives until it is removed. And if, if you have cancer, you're not just gonna sit there and do nothing about it. You're gonna go get treatment so that you can get better. And this is why Paul makes this about more than just sexual immorality. Alongside this man's sin, he lists other sins as well. In verse 11, he says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. That's a key phrase. We'll talk about that in a second. You must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Because you see, all of these behaviors are like a tumor that if left unchecked will eventually kill us both individually and collectively. You know, in other words, if, if you are a Christian who knows you are engaging in sexually immoral behavior, but you're doing nothing about it, or knowingly allowing your life and decisions to be driven by greed, or knowingly allowing 
uh, or putting someone or something else in your life before God, or regularly giving yourself over to drunkenness, or making a living by cheating others out of their hard-earned money, that kind of behavior will wind up killing your soul and killing the church. And this is why there is not a single sin that we commit, that we can afford to be nonchalant about. There there is no room to say, "Ah, I'm a pretty decent person otherwise, and this is the only thing I really do wrong, and leave it unchecked. Because any sin left unchecked, either in your personal life or in the church, will result in spiritual death. Now, is anything worth that? Of course not. Nothing is worth that. And and that's why once you're aware of sin that exists in your life, just like if you would become aware that you have cancer, it is imperative to deal with it. If you don't deal with it, it will kill you. Just like cancer. And church, hear this. Jesus is the only one who can truly deal with it. Jesus is the only one who can truly deal with it. He is the only one who possesses the cure to this cancer of our souls. He is the only one who can remove the sins that threaten our eternal well-being. Amen? Amen. Jesus is the only one with the cure. So if Jesus is the only one with the cure, how do we allow Jesus to cure us? Repentance. Repentance. And this leads us to our second lesson from our text for this morning. Repentance is the only means by which we experience the saving grace of Jesus. So what is repentance? Repentance is the act of humbly turning our hearts and lives away from sin and towards God. It marks a complete change in the trajectory of our lives. Instead of desiring to live in the sins and resign ourselves to the sins that once defined our lives, we no longer want those things, and rather we want what God wants for our lives, which means we we begin actively fighting against the sins that we were once living in. Instead of resigning ourselves to the sins that we were once living in, we now are engaged in a fight. Last week, we talked about spiritual warfare and the necessity of putting on the armor of God. This is part of that fight that we choose to engage when we say yes to Jesus. We say yes to Jesus and no to sin, and we say, Jesus, I'm gonna fight against the sin that once defined my life. Instead of resigning myself to it and saying, well, I have faith that whatever I do, Jesus is going to forgive me. Um, No, that's not how it works. We begin to fight against sin. So so think about it this way. You know, if I walked up to you um, and punched you in the face and I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I turned around and did it again. Would you believe that I was sorry? No, right? I mean, and and that's that's the same thing uh, with repentance. You know, it's... Unrepentant sin, and this is a hard analogy to hear, but seriously, hear this. Unrepentant sin is like punching Jesus in the face and saying we're sorry, only just to turn around and do it again. And Jesus will not stand for that kind of blatant disrespect for the sacrifice he made. 
And this is why Paul says in Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. The Apostle Paul, ladies and gentlemen, he was not afraid to speak a hard truth. But chew on that for a second. Unrepentant sin leads to spiritual death. That is why it must be dealt with, both in our individual lives and in the church, especially in cases where the sin is public, known, and unrepentant. And this, this leads us to the third and final thing I'd like to talk about today, which is the purpose of church discipline and the way that Paul is talking about it. Um, so in this case, in Paul's recommendation, church discipline uh, serves three roles in the life of the church. The first thing, it, the, the first purpose it serves is a wake-up call uh, for the person living in unrepentant sin. You know, so when this man was approached by the church and expelled from their midst, do you think he would start taking his sin kind of seriously and say, say, oh, actually what I'm doing is a big deal. This is not okay. The second thing is it sends a message about God's standard of holiness to the church, right? Instead of relativizing everything and, and just operating on the basis of what we think is fair or unfair, we begin saying, no, actually God's word says this is not okay and we're not going to pretend like it is. And then the third thing is that it preserves the witness of the church to the world. So when we take sin seriously and when we show the, a watching world that we take sin seriously, that sends a message to the world. So when Paul told the church in Corinth to expel the immoral man from their midst, listen to what he said. Verse five, hand this man over to Satan for destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Did you catch that? The purpose of discipline is not to make a person pay for what they have done, but rather so that they might come to their senses and be saved. That's the, the purpose of church discipline, is so that we might be saved. And even the person who is in sin might be Saved. So that means our desire in speaking the truth to a person must always be their salvation. You know, there's a difference between speaking the truth in love and just speaking the truth. Um, you know, if I walk up to you and start telling you everything you're doing wrong in your life and tell you you're going to hell for what you've done, I am not speaking the truth in love. I'm just being a judgmental dimwit. But if I come up to you in love and concern for the well-being of your soul and tell you that Jesus wants better for your life and implore you for the well-being of your soul to repent. That's speaking the truth in love. And to not do that would be unloving. You know, if I had something going on in my life that I knew I needed checked, I would want someone to tell me so that I could bring that to Jesus and find healing from that thing. If I have a blind spot, which we all have blind spots, right? Anybody here have no blind spots? Anybody perfect? No? Okay. So we all have blind spots. If I had a blind spot and there's something in my life that was doing damage to my soul, I would want someone to tell me about it. 
And for a person to see that thing in my life and not say something would be unloving. Are we starting to see how tough love works when it comes to Christian love? And that's exactly what Paul is calling for here. He's calling for the church to get serious about this man's sin for his well-being and for their own well-being so that they can all find the healing that Jesus offers. That is what tough love looks like. And here we arrive at our third and final lesson from our passage for this morning. We are only called to show tough love to those inside the church. Inside the church. And this is huge. So one of the things you might be thinking as we're sitting here talking about all this is, well, wait a minute. So if we're not to associate with people living in unrepentant sin, what about anybody who's not a Christian? There are plenty of people living in unrepentant sin. And Paul says in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. In other words, we are to judge amongst ourselves, but not those outside the church. And it's also important to note that there is a difference between passing judgment on someone and judging someone's behavior to be sinful. So telling someone, you know, you're going to hell for what you've done is passing judgment. And that is not in our job description. Uh, That is way above our pay grade. That job belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. But it is our job to watch over one another in Christian love and judge one another's behavior in accordance to God's word so that we might help one another steer clear of pitfalls. Again, if I had something going on in my life that I knew was doing damage to my soul or even that I didn't know was doing damage to my soul, I would want someone to come alongside me and tell me and help me to find the healing that only Jesus can offer. You know, and, and this is why the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, was so adamant about people meeting in small groups to confess their sins to one another and to be accountable to one another. You know, he acknowledged that we bear responsibility for one another's spiritual well-being. So that said, I'd like to show you all a little tough love as your pastor this morning and do a spiritual well-being check. So take a moment and just consider these questions. The first one, and this, this is how John Wesley's meetings would always start, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? You know, is there sin in your life that you're tolerating, that you've maybe resigned yourself to. You know, maybe you found a, a way to explain it away. You know, maybe you might say, well, that's just who I am. You know, I'm a seven on the Enneagram and I just can't help it. Uh, I just have an addictive personality. Whatever we might find, right, to, to justify our behavior. But when it comes to sin, we would be wise to listen to Paul's advice. Don't explain it away. Don't excuse it. Don't minimize it. Deal with it. Deal with the sickness. Find the cure in Jesus. Even if it's difficult, even if it means making waves in your life or another person's life, bring it to Jesus. Find the cure. And don't be afraid to help one another find the cure, to speak the truth in Christian love for the well-being of one another's souls. That is what we are called to do, church. Because when we come to the foot of the cross together 
and acknowledge our brokenness together before Jesus, that's when we're able to find healing. If we just remain ignorant to our brokenness and we, and we pretend like it's not there, or we pretend like it doesn't exist or we minimize it, that only serves to continue to feed the brokenness. And Jesus wants us to deal with it. And so if there's brokenness in your life that you need to deal with this morning, know that repentance is how you find the cure. Say, Jesus, I know you want better for my life and I don't want this anymore. I don't want to resign myself to this sort of stuff. I want the healing that only you can offer and I know that I can only find that when I turn my heart away from that sin that is enslaving me and find freedom in you. Jesus wants to give you freedom. He wants to give you victory. And so let's claim that this morning together and just repent before Jesus. So I just invite you to, to make an altar in your seats right now. And we're just gonna repent before Jesus and receive this healing together this morning. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, uh, we are aware that so often we try to justify our behavior. We try to explain away why it is we are a certain way or why it is we do a certain thing. And Jesus, for that, we're sorry. We know that our sin breaks your heart. And we know that only you possess the cure for our sickness. And so, Jesus, we just acknowledge sin for what it is. It is destructive. Lord, for the things that we do that are destructive to ourselves, we repent. For the things that we do that are destructive to our relationships, to the people around us in our lives, the, the things that we do that hurt others, we repent. Jesus, we don't want these things for our lives because we know you don't want these things for our lives. And we desire only the healing that you can offer. So Jesus, as we repent before you and turn our hearts away from this sin, I pray that you would assure us that you died so that we might have freedom from these things. And so Jesus, would you help each of us here this morning to experience that freedom to know that these things don't have to hold a claim over our lives anymore and to watch over one another in love, to come alongside one another, to support one another in this walk that when one of us stumbles, there will be another one there to help us up. Lord, that as we fight against sin, that we know we're not alone in that fight, but we, we fight against it together as your church. And as we do that, we are strengthened both in our own spiritual walks and our witness to the world. And so, Jesus, would you strengthen us now? Would you, would you bind us together? And would you allow us to be a force to be reckoned with as we operate in your grace? Lord, that, that people around us would begin to see that we are a people of grace, that we are a people of freedom and forgiveness. And they, be, they begin to wonder, what is it about Armstrong, that's so different. And would you just enable us to share that love and that healing, that it would work its way out of this church and into a broken and hurting world that needs healing just as bad as we do.
And so Jesus, I pray your healing over us. And I pray that you would just make us receptive to the work of your grace that you desire to do in each of our lives. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.